AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for November 8th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we are joined by Amit Klein. He's the Vice President of Security Research at SafeBreach. A very special guest today. Amit, welcome, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your company. Sure. SafeBreach uh, is a, a, company, a, a security company that uh, provides a, a product that continuously and on, in, on an ongoing fashion scans and provides the information about the security uh, uh, status of, of, the, of, uh, of the enterprise. As part of, the, of, of my role as a company, as head of uh, SafeBridge Labs, is to provide the security content to, uh, to SafeBridge's product. By that, I mean the rules and the attack technologies and the techniques and all the nice uh, little tricks that, uh, that uh, attackers may uh, and, and do uh, uh, put in practice to get into the organization, to get the data, the sensitive data of the organization, and to uh, exfiltrate this data out of the organization. To collect this data, uh, my, my team uh, first looks at, uh, at the organizations, at our, at our own customers. Uh, they analyze attacks against our own customers. They see what works and what not. Then we, of course, study uh, closed source uh, um, information from uh, private forums and, uh, and mailing lists. And, of course, we, uh, we uh, look at the public domain to collect uh, information about uh, new and uh, evolving technologies. Uh, obviously, part of our research is um, coming up with techniques and, and tricks of our own, mm -hmm. which we share with the public uh, through top-tier conferences like uh, Hacking the Box in Amsterdam, and of course, Black Hat in USA. What I'm going to talk to you about today, uh, perfect exfiltration, is exactly such topic. Uh, as for my own private background, my own personal background, uh, I'm doing I'm 25 years now in uh, information security, uh, doing uh, mostly security research. Started at uh, at the uh, Israeli Army, and then uh, went through a series of uh, four security startups uh, in. In, in information security, of course. Uh, my, my previous role was with uh, Trustee, which was sold to IBM as CTO. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, I was a chief scientist with Toyota that was acquired by RSA. And prior to that, uh, I was the director of security and research for Sanctum that was acquired by Watchfire, which is part of IBM now. Mm -hmm. All right, very good. You know, that's quite a background. And, you know, one of the things that always seems to be the case is anybody that says that they've been in information security for more than about 15, maybe 20 years, is they've always been working in some form of the Department of Defense. That is, the, the commercial world didn't really recognize information security. It, you know, really was really fostered by the governments. And in your case, uh, I, I neglected to mention, you're joining us from Israel today. And uh, absolutely welcome you here and uh, glad that you were able to join us. 
All right. We also have here Stan Nurilov. Stan, welcome back. Right. And uh, you've had a number of sleepless nights, I think we, a couple uh, of programs ago we had mentioned. Uh, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I'm finally catching up on my sleep, apologizing to my wife, <laughs> and trying to make uh, things better. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to talk a little bit more yes. about what's been keeping you up. And um, it hasn't been necessarily a bad thing, although no. we're keeping you up with this uh, this botnet tracking activity uh, now as well. Yeah, yeah. So I'm also looking at the Mirai botnet and other uh, of these IoT botnets, uh, mm -hmm. and that's my other hobby right now. <laughs> okay, very good. And I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, we'll get right back into it a bit. Uh, you have, uh, as you'd suggested, you have the opportunity to do a lot of research and really kind of looking at what could happen so that we can find you know, techniques to be able to uh, counteract these types of, uh, of techniques. And in particular, you have an article here around exfiltration. Tell us about it. Thank you. Um, so when uh, Itzik, the company CTO, and, uh, and myself started looking at, uh, at exfiltration techniques to get into our product, uh, we, we, we kicked off by looking at the, uh, at the public domain, at what is known, what, what uh, best and, and most uh, comprehensive uh, research can offer us in, in way of, uh, of exfiltration techniques. Side, side by side with that, we started uh, evaluating and compiling our own list of requirements and specifications uh, to, um, to, to try to uh, focus and, and, and to, to define exactly what perfect exfiltration needs to, to fulfill. What are the constraints that we think uh, a, a perfect exfiltration technique uh, sh should adhere to? And as we developed our constraints and requirements on one hand and surveyed the uh, public uh, knowledge about, uh, about exfiltration techno technologies on the other hand, we, we started to realize that in fact, none of the techniques that are suggested by uh, researchers around the world actually fulfills our perfect exfiltration uh, requirements. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, that uh, triggered us triggered the, the research to find the, the holy grail in our perspective, the, the, to find the perfect exfiltration technique or set of, of techniques. So just to get you an idea, what we had in mind for, for the requirements for, for perfect exfiltration revolved around uh, ha assuming that the organization has perfect monitoring and, and reputation uh, information available. So for example, one cannot just connect from the internal network of the organization to an external machine, to an, to an external IP somewhere on the, on the uh, other side of the internet without the monitoring products of the organization telling the CISO that someone is, is uh, communicating with a suspicious or with a uh, suspicious IP or an IP whose reputation is very low. Or there's no way to, to get around uh, or to, to escape monitoring that looks at each and every packet and a series of packets from, from one source or from all sources to try to, uh, to glean some meanings or, or to understand if there's a covert channel uh, being established uh, from the, an internal machine to an external machine. So all this, and of course, we also have to assume that the organization terminates all the encrypted SSL and TLS communications uh, with the external world. 
and there are various such assumptions and requirements. Uh, ten, uh, we, we came up with ten such requirements and, and uh, restrictions, um, and, and eventually we could not find any uh, technology in, in, the, in the public domain uh, in, in the corpus of research that fulfills all ten requirements. Just to give you a, a, a very quick uh, example, there's a, a, a protocol field in the IP protocol, the Internet protocol, the, the workhorse uh, of the Internet communication, uh, um, which is called TOS type of service. It's an 8-bit field, and it's typically unused by, by most uh, machines, uh, most operating systems uh, out there. Mm-hmm. So what... what uh, the, the covert channel that was suggested by, by one researcher many years ago was to use this field to transmit data from the internal uh, uh, network to the external network mm-hmm. by simply transmitting um, eight bits in each IP packet that's going from the internal machine to an external machine. However, if you look at the requirements that uh, we had in mind for perfect exfiltration, it fails several of them. First, there is the question of the reputation of the external machine, of the IP address for the external machine. One would ask, one would ask, why does this internal machine need to communicate with the external machine? But it's, it gets worse. <clears throat> Any anomaly detection mechanism may may uh, detect the fact that the type of service field, which is typically zero, is being set to non-zero values, and that signifies an anomaly. And Furthermore, there's an opportunity for disruption. If, a gate, if the gateway of the organization simply zeroes out this field prior to forwarding the packet to the external network, to the Internet, then the, the covert channel is, is practically uh, uh, eliminated. Mm-hmm. So it's just a, a very basic example of how our requirements uh, uh, seem to uh, um, eliminate a lot or in our in our experience, all the technologies that were uh, suggested by by prior researchers, and then we came to define or to develop our own um, perfect exfiltration set of technologies. And I will give an example of one, probably uh, a very interesting one, I think. Um, and the idea here is this: the the commun- the, the internal machine, the and the external machine. All, b- both under the attacker's um, full control, need to communicate. The internal machine needs to send data. Let's say it needs to send, send a single bit to the external machine. And by the way, a lot of the exfiltration, uh, um, uh, a lot of the reason behind exfiltration calls for exfiltration of a very small uh, set of data, very small amount of data, I'm sorry, uh, like hundreds or maybe even, may up to very few thousands of bits suffice to, to exfiltrate uh, sensitive, very sensitive data for an organization, maybe internal cryptographic keys and things like that. You, one does not need to transfer megabytes or gigabytes of, of health data mm-hmm. if one has the key to get into the organization and, and steal them from, from the external uh, internet. Uh, as, as a result of exfiltration of this uh, sensitive key. So uh, we don't care about bandwidth. And in, in fact, if we demonstrate how we exfiltrate a single bit uh, we, and in a, uh, uh, in a repeatable manner, it suffices. I don't need to, um, to really demonstrate exfiltrating gigabytes. Mm-hmm. 
so how do we exfiltrate a single bit according to one of our perfect exfiltration techniques? Uh, the attacker defines, uh, the, the attacker needs to find a page, a, a page that describes, say, a product on an e-commerce site, a very popular e-commerce site. It can be IKEA, it can be, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, eBay or any, any other such site. Uh, and in our experience, about 30% of, of those e-commerce sites uh, exhibit the uh, property that we need. It's not, a, it's not a vulnerability in the site itself. It's just a property that we need in order to use that site for exfiltration. And the property is that the site has a caching engine in front of, of the uh, server that generates the product page. Uh, and the cache, the cache utility or, or functionality uh, save the uh, internal save the website application engine from having to generate the, the product page again and again by caching the page for say 60 seconds or hour or whatnot depending on the site's uh, configuration. Mm -hmm. So, in order to to send a single bit from the internal machine to the external machine, uh, the attacker chooses a page from such e-commerce site and chooses a specific time like noon and the internal machine, at exactly at noon, makes an HTTP or HTTPS hit on that designated uh, uh, product page in the in the e-commerce site. So it, re it in fact requests that page, and the page has to be not overly popular. So um, probably it should it should not so it should not reside in the cache uh, prior to the internal machine requesting. Mm -hmm. So if it's a not overly popular product, uh, we should be fine. And the internal machine makes a hit, making an HTTP request to the page at hand. If the bit is, if the bit it needs to send is is one, and it makes no such hit if the bit to be sent is zero. After about approximately 10 seconds, just a number long enough for for the uh, for, for to, to make sure that there is no problem with internet delay or so, uh, the external machine makes a hit on the same page, and it then and it observes. The HTTP headers in the response, and if it, it observed that the, that the page was generated at noon, at exactly at noon, it knows that the uh, internal machine uh, did, uh, in fact, hit that same page. If it observed that the page was generated, was generated at noon plus 10 seconds, it knows that no such hit was made, and the page was generated as a response for the request that the external machine just sent it. And this way, the external machine can can uh, uh, extract the bit that was signaled by the internal machine, and that's how I how and and therefore we uh, demonstrated how we transfer one bit from the internal machine to the external machine. Mm -hmm. The beauty of this method is that it's extremely difficult to understand that there is a covert channel in here. Mm -hmm. After all, from the organization's perspective, the internal machine just made a hit on a very popular website requesting an HTTP page, there's nothing uh, sinister or, or, or anomalous about this. And so, by collecting, by, by sending several such bits over different e-commerce sites and different pages and products for, of those e-commerce sites, we can transfer hundreds or maybe thousands of such bits. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the perfect exfiltration technologies that 
we develop. Yeah, that, so this is fascinating. And, you know, I, I really find the, uh, the area of covert channels to be an, a really interesting one because it's really a, 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 has an opportunity for a complex puzzle. Yeah, you know, what's interesting, my thesis was in a very similar topic for my master's degree. I was always <laughs> as well interested in uh, covert communications, communications in general. This is interesting because it kind of bridges so many different uh, communications theory ideas and st mm -hmm. I guess this is steganography as well, right? To yeah. uh, communicate without letting somebody know that uh, you're communicating. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah, Very interesting absolutely. Research. So I, I think, you know, Ahmed, you'd pointed out at the beginning of your discussion here that this is the last step in the cyber kill chain. I think that's perhaps a very key point here is that maybe I'm reading into this, but help me out here. Are, are you kind of suggesting that the last step in the cyber kill chain is not the best place to fo focus your efforts, that you should try to move your attack detection and uh, remediation activities farther up the kill chain? Or what are your thoughts on that? Uh, that's a fascinating topic in itself. Uh, it's probably worth, uh, you know, several hours of discussion, but I'll try to, I'll try to compress. Um, so my answer is, um, is kind of a mixed in, in the sense that you definitely need to invest um, efforts, time, money in trying to address each and every link in the, in the kill chain. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I, I think that it, that Itzik and my, my, Itzik and my, and my research uh, does not demonstrate that, that preventing exfiltration is, is futile. It does demonstrate that in some extreme conditions, in, even in some extreme conditions, exfiltration can still take place. But oftentimes, the, the, but what we did not demonstrate is uh, a massive you know, a, a megabyte, gigabyte kind of exfiltration mm -hmm. uh, can happen without being noticed. That that is what we did not uh, we did not demonstrate, and in fact, that was not our goal at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's, uh, I think that first there's a lot of room for addressing the uh, the mega breaches uh, and and uh, and preventing uh, lots of data from leaving your organization. Uh, um, illegally uh, and I think that what we have demonstrated here is is in a sense working progress or, or or setting a higher bar I don't think you know maybe if we think about it more if other researchers think about it more they will be able to find a way to pinpoint this anomaly uh, even though Frankly, we did not. We, we did think about it quite a bit, and we did not find a way to to nail down this particular kind of communications uh, to set it apart from other types of legitimate communications. But maybe mm -hmm. someone someone else will, in time, find a way, and and you know, and things will be back in the game. Mm -hmm. Well, that's actually a very good point. And so, I think there are perhaps a few things here. One is to sort of point out. I guess my observation is that. There are probably flaws in every sort of attack. And I think your observation here is that for most of the attacks today, uh, exfiltration events are relatively detectable. 
that is if you have the analysis in place to do it. And there are other places in the kill chain that perhaps things are detectable at, you know, using a variety of different techniques. And so to be able to have some diversity in the methods that you're using to detect advanced attacks, at least you hope that it won't be the perfect attack you know, across the kill chain, that there are points where you'll be able to pick up on it and have an opportunity to uh, learn more about the characteristics and then have an, a, uh, a, a formidable and a, 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 an effective remediation plan around that. And, uh, you know, I, I, so that's, I guess, one aspect of this. And, you know, to your point, perhaps there are ways to detect this type of thing that is, um, and, and Stan and I were just actually talking earlier today about the opportunity for applying machine learning in cases where, you know, maybe there are subtleties here that a person wouldn't pick up on, but if you have the right parameters in a machine learning tool, it may be able to pick up on normal behaviors and perhaps pick up on some anomalies in the behavior in this kind of scenario. Absolutely. I think that you're right in both accounts. Uh, first is that even if, there's, even if you can't cover one link in the chain, possibly or, or mm -hmm. uh, ideally you, should be, you, you will be able to cover other links in the chain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to the, on your second argument is exactly one way of, of looking at what I said earlier. And it is we don't really know. There is no mathematical proof that this exfiltration is indeed perfect, mathematically speaking. Maybe, as you said, new techniques will evolve that will be able to, um, to detect this kind, of, uh, this kind of covert channel. Absolutely. So, Matt, I just wanted to mention, I really love the concept that you're trying to raise the bar. I think that's a really important aspect of the work that you're doing. That is, uh, there is a tendency to be thinking about, you know, dealing with today's problem and not perhaps anticipating what tomorrow's problem might be and what challenges we'd, we would have. And so I think your research here is really valuable in that sense. So I commend you for that. So let's move on here. And uh, Stan, you've been working on this, uh, on this malware analysis challenge. And yeah. uh, I'd like, you know, tell us a little bit about this. What is, what is this, uh, this challenge? Uh, well, uh, you know, the company FireEye, they have a team that does, uh, I guess it's an advanced team, they do malware, reverse engineering, they mm -hmm. take apart exploits and they try to really figure out how those things work, probably, you know, to make sure that their product is the best it could be. Mm -hmm. um, and while doing that, I, I almost call this like a public service. You know, they put this challenge out there uh, to let people compete uh, to solve little reverse engineering uh, puzzles. Mm -hmm. So what they'll do is they'll, uh, I guess this is the third year they've been doing it, they'll put out a, a set of um, like executables uh, that have like a little puzzle inside that you have to reverse engineer uh, to decipher the answer. And as you advance through the challenges, the things get a little bit more complicated and complicated. So, go ahead. So this is really kind of like a capture the flag contest. Yes. But focused on malware analysis. So it, it, not necessarily having to do network analysis per se, but not I, I necessarily, presume that's a piece of it. They've evolved uh, just this year to include certain components of that. So every year they kind of outdo themselves uh, over and over again, right? Mm -hmm. So they add l more of what they see in the field. And kind of what I like about the way they put the challenge together is that it is what they see and the malware they provide. It's not exactly the malware they observe, but it uses a lot of the techniques 
uh, that malware authors are using. And they're kind of, like I said, I think it's like almost like a public service where they're putting that out there. Mm -hmm. And it's probably better than any training you could take because a lot of training out there, it talks about maybe using a specific tool or it's teaching you exactly how to do analysis. Well, with these challenges, it's very open-ended. You can use any technology you want. Mm -hmm. And actually, you learn at your own pace. Yeah. You know, um, so I, I want to just emphasize a couple of points you just made there because I think they're really important. One is that generally when you go to a training course or something like that, they're spitting stuff at you. You're, you're in kind of receive mode, not so much the doer mode. Yes. And then the second aspect that you're sort of pointing out is that in the real world, especially in analysis, there isn't a prescribed path that you take. You have to figure out of the you know, 10 choices of things that you might do, and it might be a thousand different choices, which are the, you know, the best paths to take or the most likely opportunities for success. Exactly. And doubly so with like reverse engineering, it's, it's kind of like this advanced voodoo magic kind of field where the guys who are in the know, or the guys and girls who are in the know, they kind of know how it works, but it's really hard to transfer that knowledge. So by doing these, you kind of, you're kind of building up your own compendium of mm -hmm. techniques that you see. Um, and really for reverse engineering, it's, to me, it's all about that, you know, it's recognizing certain patterns um, and then being able to say, oh, okay, I know what this is. And so as you know more patterns, uh, you become much quicker. And so in your real job as a malware analyst or as any kind of analyst, really, uh, you are quicker at making assessments. Uh, your gut instinct becomes a lot better. Um, and with this challenge in particular, like for me, I, I've evolved my understanding of all the different kinds of malware families yeah. there are. And yeah. this year, they added so much more challenge to it. <laughs> it made it so much more challenging mm -hmm. by uh, just tweaking a few things. Uh, definitely, and it's a six week thing, and I spent like, I, I didn't get into it until like week two. I spent like four weeks not sleeping, doing it, <laughs> because you really, like when you're into it, yeah. you're really into it. and. I kind of have to thank them for giving me an opportunity to geek out. <laughs> and I have to thank my family for giving me an opportunity to yeah. geek out. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, the challenges vary. I mean, they use different kinds of technologies from like x86 binary reverse yeah. engineering to like reverse engineering Python scripts or uh, the, the, the last challenge that they had uh, was using Flash and mm. like analyzing almost like a Flash exploit. So they give you, and this is a real problem that we have to deal with, and actually it kind of points back to the kinds of things that Meet was talking about. Uh, you know, they give you this PCAP file and they don't, there's no context. There's something mm -hmm. bad here and it's 21 megabytes, go look for it, right? And so you kind of use your analysis techniques to start saying, okay, in these 21 megabytes, which is a lot for a PCAP file to mm -hmm. manually look, review, what is the bad thing? And so you kind of start and build up and um, I really like the way in this particular challenge, they kind of intertwine the malware analysis with the network observation. You know, we talked about, you know, steganography or even cryptography, you know, you can encrypt things. Well, in this challenge, I actually didn't succeed in it, but the hardest part of it I did is uh, you had to break like the encryption key uh, to get to the next step of it. And usually breaking encryption is actually pretty hard yep. unless it's not implemented correctly. Mm -hmm. And uh, just being able to recognize those kinds of things. I, I just, mm -hmm. from the three years I've been doing it, I've learned how to look at code and recognize what encryption algorithm is being used. 
like base 64 is not mm -hmm. really encryption, but an obfuscation. RC4, you know, MD5, like I can look at a piece of code now, like the matrix, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, oh, that's MD5. That's the state table right. for AES and things like yeah. that. So for people who are starting out and they really find this field exciting, uh, doing these kinds of challenges, I think, is the best way to learn. Yeah. Like you learning at your own pace. And the other thing is that once the challenge is over, all the security researchers who are participating in this, they put write-ups out there. Mm -hmm. So if you weren't able to succeed in a particular part, mm -hmm. you can now learn. So the next time you can get better and better. Mm -hmm. um, and you actually see like the, the community, I think, growing. You know, There's like a Twitter handle and people are following each other mm -hmm. and they're giving each other props. So you get to know the people who are in this mm -hmm. community. Because it is a pretty small community, I would say, of people who yeah. are actually capable of doing these things, mm -hmm. uh, but they get to at least know each other. You can rely on different people to do different things. Right. If you have a malware analysis environment, doing this challenge might help you understand like what you're missing. Mm -hmm. uh, like what tools aren't we taking advantage of uh, that we should be? What analysis techniques aren't we using? So like my default is to go to like static analysis. That's where you don't execute the malware at all. Uh, and I'm really, I'd like to think good at that. But in this challenge, that's not the most efficient way. Right. In this challenge, you gotta run the malware. Otherwise, you'll be reversing it for the next hundred years. <laughs> uh, but you want to learn, like, how do I instrument it so that I'm looking at it? Uh, you know, I'm stopping at the right point to observe what it's doing. So just there's no better teacher than really just doing it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I find that even though a very challenging, sleepless experience, yeah. still very rewarding. I, it kind of like pays for itself. So uh, you actually made a few points that I wanted to again yeah. sort of reemphasize. One is that you, you, you pointed out that this is based on some of the techniques that are used by real actors. And yes. so it's not really just made up. No. Although the specifics around it are not exactly like some of the real actors might be using. I think that's really pertinent in the sense that, you know, if the real malicious actors are changing their techniques, you don't want to be lost in that, you know, depending on a signature, for example. We all know that, you know, the traditional antivirus, signature-based antivirus doesn't work well because it's so dependent on the very specifics of, of the attack. So I think you're pointing out a very uh, important thing in the sense that most organizations will have very little opportunity to experience a specific type of advanced attack until they've been a victim. That's right. And so this is an opportunity to learn about some of the techniques that are being used, not just a specific technique, but the essence around those so that you'll be able to, be able to develop the school skills to recognize it and to be able to uh, isolate it and be able to deal with it. Exactly. I, I think another point that you made is that it is a relatively small community and for any type of activity that you're involved in, this is a specialization and to be able to have something like this to help find others that are developing similar school skills is a very important networking uh, capability. So we're glad you're here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, we uh, hopefully uh, have fewer opportunities for you to exercise those skills here, but uh, certainly opportunities to be able to help our customers and help others and develop those skills. So a very important part of this. Amit, do you have any comments uh, so uh, I was thinking about this right now, and I think it's uh, also 
kind of uh, in line with some thoughts I heard about reverse engineering uh, in general. And and if I think the way I look at reverse engineering in general is that it's kind of a, a linear activity in the sense that if you give me X kilobytes of, of binary code, I can probably uh, reverse engineer it uh, in in why uh, days or why hours or why weeks mm-hmm. whatever uh, so there's kind of um there's, it's it's linear in the sense that if i also if i throw in 100 people 100 reverse engine even mediocre reverse engineers they'll probably be able to come up with a reasonably uh, uh readable source code after in an, in a predictable amount of time the thing is, the, the, the crux of the matter is that this predictable time is going to be huge, in fact. So if, if you know, we are looking at a megabyte of, of binary code, especially if it's a bit obfuscated, it may take months or maybe even more for, for someone, for a single person to come up with, uh, with readable source code, maybe, maybe even years. I, 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 can't, really, I can't really tell. Mm-hmm. And, and, and here comes the art of reverse engineering. The art is that we do not necessarily need to reverse engineer each and every uh, binary uh, machine instruction into its uh, counterpart source code. Uh, we typically we need to answer few very specific questions that are maybe tactical, such as how does this malware process this file, or what is the protocol and, and key or for the command and control communication and if someone skilled uh, with the art in the art uh, and and professional reverse engineering can answer this question much quicker than than reverse engineering the whole bunch of, of binary instructions uh, that represent the complete malware so it, it's 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 all so in, in theory reverse engineering is is it's straightforward. In practice, it's art of it's the art of taking shortcuts and and uh, and applying various tricks and maybe even combining static and, and, and dynamic analysis to answer questions that do not necessarily need the access to the full source code of the malware. Uh, that's that's my my view of, of this uh, of this profession. Uh, you know, that's an excellent point, and I think you need to make the recommendation stand to FireEye. This really needs to be the reverse art challenge. I mean, it, I, mean it, I, right. I, I think Amit's point is actually right. It's, yep. it's, it's taking it beyond methodology and science and turning it into a matter of making good judgment in a particular situation. That ultimately is an art. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, while you're doing that, while you're learning the art, you take the lessons learned and apply them to a more methodical, rigorous way. Mm-hmm. So a lot of malware these days... Well, there days, is engineering in that. So it's, <laughs> it's engineering reversing the art. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, I find that, you know, a lot of times when we are, you know, it, it does take a lot of effort to go and look at a sample. But once you do, you're usually learning some technique that's pretty reusable mm-hmm. that you can write a, a script or a methodology around to start extracting that metric, uh, you know, going forward, mm-hmm. and now you don't have to do that part of it, and you're just combining these little metrics to make the 
you know, the art much faster. Mm -hmm. And then of course, I don't even know, like the human brain is just amazing. You know, just being able to like look at a piece of code and recognize that that's an algorithm potentially. I don't even know how you put a methodology <laughs> around it. And I think to your guy's point, yeah. that's exactly the art component of it. Yeah, yeah, very good point. You know, there are a lot of artists that have learned how to mimic Van Gogh, but there is only one that created it in the first place. And I think that's the kind of thing that you really, is, it's really creating those new techniques and then being able to put them in a methodology. You've got it exactly right. All right, so I guess the next thing we'd like to cover here is some viewer mail. From, uh, we got some email from uh, Patrick, and this relates to actually in episode 218, this was actually the, the, uh, the Dirty Cow episode if you're on the, uh, on the Threat Track site. Uh, it was discussing data that was leaked by pagers and, uh, and useful for critical infrastructure attacks. So this was actually an article that was originally written by Trend Micro and published where they had collected, I think on the order of about 55 million pager messages uh, in various places and found things like, you know, health information and, you know, potentially critical infrastructure control information, usually, you know, status type things. And so Patrick wrote email, he said, you know, are the authorities watching this? You know, is it available to them? And then, you know, the first answer is effectively, you know, threat tracks available to the public, is available to anybody, so that they would have a resource to be able to, uh, to, you know, learn about these kinds of things. Of course, you know, Trend Micro, I think, published that paper also with the same notion in mind, that is folks that are using uh, pager systems in this way really need to understand that, um, you know, these types of things exist. So, but there's actually a, a little bit of a question about who the appropriate authorities would be in this particular case, because we're looking at uh, health information was one example. I think there was a, uh, also the potential around power plants and that might be involved in this and perhaps other industrial control systems. You know, there are different regulating authorities associated with those, those organizations like HIPAA requirements associated with health information. I think this could potentially be a case where uh, certain organizations are have what I like to call uh, compliance-itis, which is the, you know, I'm focused on being compliant, and if the requirements don't say something about how you use pager systems, perhaps they're not reviewing how pager systems are being used. So we get those sorts of subtleties that tend to, tend to exist. And, you know, PCI requirements specifically note Wi-Fi as one of the threats, it was because you know, there was actually a historical event. One of the first, uh, what I would think, a, a large um, a credit card theft case was related to an improperly protected Wi-Fi environment where somebody was able to actually sit out in the parking lot and start collecting credit card information. Not a good scenario. So they changed the PCI requirements for payment card uh, industry to make sure that rogue Wi-Fi sites or Wi-Fi sites that weren't uh, well protected were covered as a part of the compliance. And that's the sort of thing is that the folks that are writing the compliance rules really need to be involved here, but more so folks that are running organizations need to get past compliance and really be thinking strategically about the security controls that need to be in place to protect their environment. So that's one sort of uh, consideration that perhaps is in mind here. A second one, you know, I think all too often the notion around confidentiality, confidentiality and integrity being basically uh, grouped together and reliability or availability 
are, uh, are oftentimes overlooked. I think that's a really important aspect of considering security systems. So this being an example, there are in fact encrypted pager solutions that are available, but perhaps they chose to use the less complex, less fraught for you know, failure in favor of availability. That is, if you want a system to be reporting its status to say, you know, I can't read this thing or I'm not able to uh, measure the temperature correctly, uh, is just, you know, a hypothetical example, you'd want that message to get through without anything inhibiting the success of that. So that is perhaps a deliberate decision on the part of the folks that implemented this system. I, I wonder, doubt that that's the case. Yeah, but I wonder it, if they it, just didn't think is, about it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a good possibility. So, and then the last one would be here is my sort of the, what I like to refer to as the policy erosion principle. Is generally speaking, most likely these pager systems were put into place for a specific purpose, and somebody said, you know what? I can use that for this other thing. And if the folks that implemented that did not consider that other thing, then perhaps the security requirements around it weren't fully considered. So, you know, originally pagers were used to just call people's attention to something, call me back. And uh, that would be relatively innocuous because it wouldn't be disclosing information. It would just be, you know, a page, a number, phone number went out every once in a while. And then it evolved to be, okay, well, we can add some text information. And then it becomes a hazard about what sort of text information is involved in it. And I suspect that that's most likely the case. So, how do we fix this type of problem? Well, first of all, I think education is a big part of this. That is, the folks that are doing the analysis, or excuse me, doing the engineering or the implementations of systems, not only need to be considering the, exist the systems they're going toward, but considering the systems that are in place and whether the policy erosion principles taken place or if perhaps you know, they aren't paying attention to things that are outside of what the word of the compliances. And uh, last but not least, make deliberate decisions about whether availability, integrity, or confidentiality are important aspects of the system and making sure that those are implemented. So I don't know, Stan, do you have any other comments about this? Uh, well, you look like you're on the edge of your seat. Yeah, to well, say something. <laughs> sorry. I figure with, uh, you know, a lot of times when people put a system together, especially at the moment in time they're in, they, like you mentioned, you know, maybe they don't think through all of the possibilities. Mm -hmm. I like your comment about, you know, you know, the pagers were used for sending an alert. Well, maybe even if they had done a risk assessment, you know, sending this or that piece of information, not that big a deal. Mm -hmm. Now, when you start combining all of this information, all the pieces does, and parts, does that make a bigger impact than what you had originally predicted? Because you can definitely get an exception for, hey, I can send the temperature out, that's no big deal. Mm -hmm. Hey, I can send out the up and down status, but what about together? Now that you're sending out all of this information, does mm -hmm. that change the risk rating or something mm -hmm. like that? Should we do more? You know, another part of that well, is- I, mean, I just wanted to emphasize, you made a good point there because I think one of the contexts around this analysis, and by the way, I, I, I meant to say earlier, I think this is an excellent finding by Trend Micro. I think they've done a, a good thing here by raising attention to this and making it very practical. It's not even just a, a theoretical thing. It's something that they said, this really exists, and uh, really making sure that the word gets out. And I'm hoping that uh, they've made sure that 
you know, some of the organizations, the compliance authorities and DHS, for example, if it's critical infrastructure, are aware of this, uh, this publication. But, you know, you, you made the point that the, one of the scenarios that they had talked about is the ability to use this information to perhaps use social engineering or some sort of a phishing attack to say, you know, include some contextual information to say, you know, like, this person must know what they're talking about. They must be authoritative because they know what they're talking about. And uh, to use that in, in, yeah. as a part of an attack. Yeah, and those are the kinds of risk profiles they probably didn't right. get into if they did a risk assessment at mm -hmm. all. You know, most often when you're using a technology that you don't think anybody's snooping on, you don't really think about confidentiality mm -hmm. all that much. Just the channel of communication is uh, kind of, you know, an encryption itself in a mm -hmm. sense, because nobody knows how to decrypt it. But here we are years later, right, with these systems still in use, where it's much more practical to be able to sniff the channel or read into the channel. So now all the secrets are open. Mm -hmm. And uh, so maybe if there was any protection in there or any risk assessment that they did do and you know use this as a reason, they did not anticipate mm -hmm. years later still being in use and other people now being able to freely mm. you know view this information. Okay. So a yep. couple of things there. Yeah, absolutely. Amit, any additional thoughts from you? Yeah, my comment about this is that I don't see uh, pagers as much different than telephony calls and, and fax. Uh, if you think about it, there's a lot of, say, health information and other sensitive personal information going on, being disclosed in telephony calls uh, and, and fax uh, messages. And these two can also be intercepted if they are, especially if they are going through uh, non-wire uh, media such as point-to-point uh, -point, uh, connections, uh, radio connections, or satellite connections. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I don't see that as very different in nature than, than the research about pages. And we should, if we think about how to harden. Uh, pager uh, connections, I do think that we need to apply the same kind of standards to telephony and, and to fax. Mm -hmm. There's another, an, another kind of communication which is perhaps less, uh, less uh, vulnerable but still needs to, to, to be considered, and that's the, um, the surface mail system. Also, something that can be in 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 ways in, in intercepted and also carries a lot of uh, personal information. So there are some when when we have bolstered up some the the uh, typical the, the internet network uh, communications, people start looking at other communications to extract uh, personal information, and there are in fact some. A communication systems, as, as we as we mentioned, pagers, telephony, fax, surface mail, that are vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and actually, you reminded me. Your comments here reminded me. I agree with you thoroughly. The uh, the, the the additional aspect of this that I hadn't mentioned earlier is that, you know, it, it's part of that policy erosion thing. But there are two angles to the policy erosion, and that things get implemented with a particular use in mind, and then they get 
I'll say misused or used in different ways over time and it becomes a, a, a security issue. But on top of that, over time, the threat has changed. There have been significantly greater motivations to steal credit card information, to steal uh, um, identity information and use that to, as a you know, means to monetize uh, that information. And so uh, we have to look at both angles in terms of the security policy erosion. That is, we shouldn't assume that things we implemented 10 years ago just because they were okay 10 years ago, that they're still okay today because even if they're just used in the same way, they may, in fact, the threat may have changed, the technology to attack them may have changed, and the, uh, the motivation to attack them may have changed. So appreciate your comments, very good. So let's take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here, and uh, we're gonna start with what is a, uh, looks a little bit like a Pac-Man, I think we've mentioned this before. Uh, port 23 is really over the top, as we'd expected, you know, uh, and we've been talking about this for quite some time, since I think way back in 2014, when they started doing compromise activities at a smaller scale of these IoT devices, but this is, that Mirai botnet and variations around that. And Stan, you've been doing some uh, research into this and finding the command and control servers and yes. activity associated with it. Uh, and lots of other variants are sort of popping up and, and around. Yeah. Ever since the source code was released, uh, the amount of variants, I think, you know, first of all, the level, the bar of entry has been lowered. Mm -hmm. So anybody can just compile and kind of distribute. And there's lots of variants out there. There's you know, I would call like legitimate mm -hmm. DDoS services. They're not legitimate, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. they have like a whole business around them. Even mm -hmm. they are using variants of Mirai to provide their DDoSing service, right. uh, and, as well uh, as nefarious groups. And, and while Amit here is trying to raise the bar in terms of what we're looking at from a security standpoint, this is a really low bar. I mean, yes. these are devices that have a default password coded in the firmware, you can't even change the password in many cases. So that's a, uh, that's a formidable challenge. And I, there are a lot of folks that are taking a look at what needs to be done to deal with and, uh, the safety of devices that are sold to consumers uh, so that this type of thing doesn't continue, continue forward. Um, you know, Underwriters Laboratories has been looking at setting some standards around this, but I think the mindset currently is still, in fact, there are a number of other groups writing standards or guidelines for security of IoT uh, or anything that connects to the internet for that matter. Uh, but it's a, it's a difficult challenge because the guidelines are great for the folks that are paying attention to those things. It doesn't do so well for the folks that are not paying attention or even especially in a case where they might be intentionally subverting things. So uh, there's still some uh, work that needs to go into this. So I should cover the, uh, a couple of the other uh, ports that we're seeing here. Next in line is port 2323. And I think it was actually a variant or a, a particular type of IoT device that was using port 2323 as an alternate port for Telnet. So that basically equates to Telnet default password guessing as well, followed by port 80 TCP. And uh, we're gonna take a little closer look at that one a little bit later on. So it looks like there's perhaps some growth targeting the web interfaces on these devices. And then followed by 3389 TCP. We'll take a look at that one a little bit later on because that is also showing some long-term growth and activity that's a remote desktop protocol, followed by 22 TCP, that's SSH. There are, in fact, some devices, I think some home routers, for example, you can enable 
SSH access from the internet in some cases, and so that's uh, a case where that type of activity is being targeted. And then followed by 123 UDP, that's network time protocol, that gets used for uh, setting the clocks on computers, but also, unfortunately, if there is an NTP server available on the internet, it can be used for reflective denial of service attacks. Followed by 445 TCP, that's uh, generally configure activity still, that's uh, a Microsoft NetBIOS port. Followed by 1433, that's uh, Microsoft SQL database. And then uh, we see ICMP type 8 is actually associated with uh, basically a ping request. So it's really just general probing on the network. And then uh, finally, 53 UDP, looking for DNS servers and oftentimes used, again, in reflective denial of service attacks. So we'll take a little closer look at a few of these in a moment, in a couple of moments here. Uh, this next pie chart looking at the most sources that are doing that probing. This is a case where we're counting the number of unique IP addresses that are performing the probing on uh, each of these ports. And again, port 23 is a significant part of that, about 75% of the activity followed by, again, some of the same ports that we had just uh, listed out. 2323 TCP, 80 TCP, 445 TCP. Uh, we have one that's unique here, 27015 UDP. And uh, we're gonna take a little closer look at that one because that one did jump up 20 spots in terms of the, uh, the ranking, and then followed by 22 TCP, and uh, we have some uh, ICMP ports that are basically, I'll call it reactive or uh, backscatter type activities generally. Looking uh, more closely at port 23 TCP, first of all, I'll talk about the bottom graph. The bottom graph here is really showing the number of source addresses that are doing scanning activity, and it's still at significantly elevated activities. We're looking at on the order of about 300,000 sources in any given hour that are being, basically are they're performing the scanning activity. And we saw a little bit of a dip over the last week, but it seems to be picking up. And I think this is new sort of variants uh, that are popping into the scene. And then I, I should point out, and I think perhaps John Hogan talked about it, we did see sort of a drop in the activity that is perhaps devices that have been taken offline, either blocked in some way, that had been uh, seen identifying, uh, had been identified as participating in these botnets, or perhaps the end users recognized the issue and have taken them offline. So uh, we have seen a little bit of a drop in that activity. Now looking at the top graph, this is the number of probes that are taking place. And what we're seeing is that over the last week or so here, actually less than a week or so, is a significant increase in the number of probes. So I think this is, Stan, as you had alluded to, variants that are coming onto the scene and are perhaps scanning even much more aggressively. And so that has actually resulted in a significant increase overall in the scanning activity yep. we're seeing on the network. And just to point out, you know, based on the graph and what I know about the release of the botnet, when the person released the bot, the author released the source code, they mentioned that at the height they were able to have like 350,000 participants and actually correlates very well with this graph. Mm -hmm. And they said after some takedown activity, they saw it go down to 300. I think if you review the graph again, you'll see that that's exactly kind of where we're seeing right it. Right around where it is. Yeah, yep. Exactly. And there, are, there is some other activity in there. That, so the Mirai is right. basically the one that's most readily recognized, right. but they, aren't, they don't have a lock on this area. No. So we should recognize the fact that there are and have been other botnets that have been performing this activity. But it seems like there is, like this is the sweet spot of the number of devices that mm -hmm. are out there yeah. that are susceptible to this. Mm -hmm. 
The uh, next item here is the scan probes and sources on port 2323 TCP. Again, this is just another uh, device type that's being targeted. They're not as many of them, but in terms of the number of sources that we're seeing in the order of maybe 10,000 or so, uh, we did see a, a early spike in the activity and it seems to be, uh, I will say, leveled off or uh, in the activity. So some of the devices, some of the malware, I think, scans both ports, 23 and as well as 2323. And uh, so there's some crossover in that activity. Uh, the next item here is that I just wanted to share sort of the aggregate. This is looking over the last three years of activity and scam probes on vulnerable IoT devices. And uh, this is actually, you know, I, I think really kind of testimony to the, how this activity has changed over the last three years. It really kind of started uh, back in, you know, say late 2013 into, say, February 2014, where we started to see some early activity around this. And the, uh, the first activity that we saw that was really kind of notable around, you know, IoT devices was actually a uh, port 5000. It was a management port for network attached storage. So that's this original, this early sort of light green blip that we're seeing over here on the left side of the graph. And then as we progressed to the right, we saw some other ones pop into play. Uh, one in particular was a backdoor port. 53413 UDP that was associated with Netis routers. It was a, you know, you can basically encapsulate a script into the payload of the packet and it'll execute that script. And so that's what that yellow activity is that, uh, that spiked up on here a couple of times. And then later what we see is the telnet activity is really taken over. And the blue activity, by the way, at the bottom happens to be relatively stable, but continue, but uh, certainly a part of this attempts to do uh, password guessing attacks on port 22 or SSH. So the telnet activity, the green one, really climbed significantly, actually very recently. I don't think we're done with this yet. No. So we'll have to see how that tracks over the next few days. Uh, and then notable, even on port 80, we've seen some botnet activity. This is looking at the number of sources that are scanning on port 80 TCP. Now, you'd expect that there, there might be some scanning activity on port 80 anyway, kind of looking around for, to see what websites exist. And so we typically see on the order of about 5,000 sources, but this jumped up to 80,000 sources in no time flat. Clearly botnet activity, uh, taking a look at the uh, sources of that activity, it does seem to be connected with IoT type activity. So it's not just looking for regular websites, I suspect. I think what they're doing is looking for devices because it, quite frankly, these devices, they expose a web interface to the internet. Uh, this is the, the closed circuit TV camera DVRs. Uh, they expose a web interface to the internet so you can log into the devices and see the cameras. And some of these cases, they have a uh, authentication bypass issue associated with Sometimes the passwords aren't set on them. And then uh, I think John Hogeboom had been able to identify that there is in fact a case where they actually have a PowerShell in the device so that you can actually issue Linux commands and perhaps incorporate it into a botnet as well. So um, I don't know for a fact, but that may be what they're looking for in this particular case. So that activity has tapered off over the, this is actually looking at the, you know, the activity started about a week ago, uh, right around the time of the last threat track report. And um, it has uh, settled out a little bit, but uh, perhaps isn't over yet. And just a couple more items I wanted to share with you. Uh, the next one is port 3389, that's remote desktop protocol, looking at the last year of activity. And it looks like the activity has basically doubled or so, perhaps a little bit more than that, maybe tripled or quadrupled over the last year or so. And, uh, but we'll have to see if that actually stabilizes that way. 
But uh, this is concerning because uh, sometimes point of sale devices, registers being you know, Windows-based devices, sometimes have remote desktop protocol enabled on those. And uh, it's, it's potentially a vector for doing uh, credit card theft activities. So uh, obviously, that's not a desirable thing. So if, you're, uh, if you have a point of sale device or actually any computer, make sure remote desktop protocol is shut down unless you absolutely need it. And the last item here, uh, scan sources on port 27015 UDP. That's a, uh, basically a port that's associated with a half-life gaming servers. You know, folks might set up gaming servers to be able to have their own gaming groups and, and such. I believe the motivation here is that that port, being a UDP port, can be used for reflective denial of service attacks. So uh, this is a clearly botnet activity again. We're seeing it went from zero to 11,000 sources scanning on that port and it has that sort of telltale or that taper or that uh, decay pattern that's uh, typically associated with a botnet activity. So I suspect it's a botnet looking for servers that they might be able to use in denial of service attacks. We have not seen any significant activity using this port in denial of service attacks, although we have seen a little bit. I wouldn't describe it as significant, so hopefully it'll stay that way. It still, I think uh, the, the, the predominant uh, Port for these reflective denial of service attacks is uh, associated with DNS, port 53 UDP. So, Ahmed, any final comments before we close out here? Just I'd be interested in the graph, that, the charts that you presented, specifically the ones that uh, pertain to attacks against the IoT. I would very much love to see another, another chart over this one, or together with this one, showing the growth of the IoT devices uh, around mm-hmm. the world. And to see whether you know the which one outpaces the other, or do they go the same uh, in, in, in the same pace? Mm-hmm. It would be interesting. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, the and, and this is actually looking at probing activity, not necessarily the number of sources or the number of devices that are infected. The uh, I think the previous graph that, that we looked at. So this is actually a very pertinent point that you're you're bringing up is um, how aggressive the probing activity is not necessarily a strong reflection of how many devices are actually infected or even how many devices are out there. Although there is certainly a correlation. It's not a direct correlation necessarily. So when we look at this graph, uh, it kind of shows the combination of the two. And if we looked at a three-year view, we'd certainly still see a very uh, significant growth in the number of sources that are participating. And, uh, but there are a couple of other factors we have to take into account. One is, is there somebody motivated to find them? And secondly, is there somebody, or are there known exploits that can be used against them? And it's the combination of those three. How many devices are out there, knowledge of the exploit, and folks motivated to go find them and exploit them that, uh, that all have a, uh, an influence on the growth over time. So very good point. I, I don't have any specific statistics on the availability or how many devices are out there, or it would be uh, perhaps useful to do it. I, you know, we could perhaps do a, a, well, I guess we don't have historical information from Shodan, and that would be perhaps one resource to be able to find this kind of information, but uh, we'd need historical information to do that. So it's, a, it's a, a good observation that is, you know, to understand what influencing factors exist here is, um, is an important part of it. So very good. A, uh, that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at 
www.att.com. And you can find AT&T Threat Track in three places. It's on the AT&T Tech Channel, it's on YouTube, and as well on iTunes in an audio cast for uh, version. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Business. Uh, Amit, I'd like to give you a special thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, you know, even though you're thousands of miles away from us, I think we really felt uh, that we've uh, developed a close bond. So I really, again, appreciate you being here. Stan, thank you for joining today. Thanks for having me. I'm Brian Rexford. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.